This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, impact investing connects the worlds of Wall Street with the world of the back streets of underserved communities. Uh, and, and one of the challenges that impact investors face is how they build portfolios that have impact, not just in financial terms, but also in terms of the social returns that they generate. Uh, we're lucky to have with us today to talk about this uh, Tony Davis, who is the founder and CEO of Inherent Group in the U.S., and joining me uh, in, in speaking with Tony uh, is uh, Doreen Shanaz, uh, the founder of the Impact Investment Exchange, who is joining us from Singapore. Uh, Tony and Doreen, thank you so much for being part of this uh, this podcast today. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Mukul. Uh, Doreen, uh, could I turn it over to you to ask the first question? Sure, sure, sure. So, um, first of all, you know, just a quick welcome to... Um, to Tony, and uh, thank you for being on the show. And uh, Tony, we'll, you'll be joining us today along with, later on, um, uh, another impact investor from, from Asia. So we're very excited to get these two different perspectives in terms of creating a portfolio with impact. So let me start off with that, um, which is what actually sort of drove you to um, create a portfolio with impact, which, you know, it it looks like you have done very effectively. So do please share it with us and the work that Inherent has done so far. Uh, well, thank you, Doreen. Uh, and it's very good to be here today and to, to chat with you. Well, for my own, for my own story is is one of um, really really started with a more traditional approach to in, to investing, um, and I um, re- retired for that. Some, some two years ago and really wanted to find a way to invest in a values-aligned way. And I, I didn't know exactly what that meant or how to do it. And, um, you know, as you embark down this path, there, there are a lot of different um, definitions of the word impact or sustainability um, that are used. So it can be difficult, I think, to – I think it can be difficult to – to navigate and figure out how one does it, but I, but you know, the primary impulse really for me was to use uh, to, to to use um, the, my money and our family's wealth in a way that was aligned with with our values, and it just felt so arcane to me to invest on the one hand and just make as much as we can risk adjusted with those investment and then take those returns and give them away it just felt it just felt like why aren't we starting with the investment itself if our goal is to use our wealth in a responsible way to improve the lives of others to improve the environment um, why would we why would we sort of jump over that initial step of the investment itself so let's figure out how do we invest in a way that is aligned with our values and, and, and more responsible. So that was, that was really the impulse. I, I would say also I came to believe that, you know, while, while, while I, I certainly believe that all of civil society and foundations and the work that they do in philanthropy is, is super important and, of course, policy work, 
both at the local level, the national level, and the multilateral level are very important for addressing these issues. I, I feel like business has a really leading role to play in, in addressing these, some of these challenges, both in terms of innovation, product innovation and services innovation, but, but also in terms of how they conduct their business practices, whatever industry it may be in. Um, so, so maybe it was those two things kind of at its core. It was, one, a desire to figure out how do, how do we do good while investing our money, and secondly, um, excitement around the ability for business to address some of these challenges. Right. So basically really looking at what, uh, um, you know, you always have heard you say this, uh, you know, a number of times, and, and it's also on your website, which is really using business models to address um, societal challenges. And I can't help but sort of draw some parallel, I guess, with your Lauder and Wharton degree, you know, between the two schools, which effectively, of course, uh, brings the whole the societal aspect, the cultural aspect, the civil society aspect, along along with the business side. Now, how does this translate into actually creating a portfolio? I mean, right. was it difficult <laughs> to sort of do that, to find the entities? I mean, I mean, how did you go about it? Yeah, well, well, first let me say we're still learning, um, uh, but we but we are gaining knowledge as we go, and I think getting smart about it. Uh, we have different entities here at Inherent Group that we manage. Um, some are our uh, direct investments. Uh, some are our indirect investments through uh, other managers. And mm-hmm. then there is the foundation, um, which we manage as well. And maybe just to start with the foundation, because it in a way um, maybe encapsulates kind of how we're thinking about the issue. Uh, we... And we are making grants out of foundation along um, our, our, in accordance with our mission. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, as you, as you, as I'm sure know, in the United States, you have a five percent sort of statutory requirement for grant making right. each year. But the other ninety-five percent of our capital, we felt we wanted to align it with our mission as well. And what that meant was looking at a full range of investment opportunities. Um, where we could do so, and we think about we think about those investment opportunities as either being um, sort of you know mission related investments, which means that the they're aligned with our mission, but the expected return mm-hmm. per unit of risk that we're taking on is market, uh, and so it could be it could be a debt investment or it could look more like an equity investment, but the expected return is kind of commensurate with the risk that we're taking on from a market lift, market standpoint. And then, of course, as you know, right. the, there there are the program-related investments where we explicitly expect to to receive it's a for-profit investment, but we expect to receive less than market rates of return for our investment. And why would we do that? Well, we would do that just because we believe so strongly in the social um, or environmental return aspects of that investment that it fits our foundation mission and we're willing to forego a market rate of return from making that investment. So that was really the first step to look at the foundation and say, look, let's let's get our investments um, you know, out of the plain vanilla world and into the more kind of mission and program-related investment landscape. And in that context, we've been able to participate um, 
in in, in loans that have been um, have a pay for success element to them, and bonds that have mm-hmm. a sort of outcome based element to them. And then we were very excited, of course, to participate in the Women's Livelihood Bond, um, which is very much aligned with with um, our mission, and we believe um, will generate um, a, a nice return to the foundation as well. Right. And I think, you know, what's also sort of interesting just to, you know, as we have seen with your portfolio, that you really have sort of sort of kept that gamut of mission-related investment and program-related investment. And I think um, what's also very interesting is to see that, um, you know, you kind of, you're very cognizant of it, it looks like, in, in your portfolio of how much should go into what and what should come from the foundation. Because... You know, and this is something it will be very helpful, I know, um, especially in the Asia context, um, you know, when a lot of the family offices are looking at this, um, to to really see how to do it. So, I mean, in terms of even the percentage breakdown or even looking at, you know, um, in mm-hmm. the portfolio and in, in, in a whole, um, is there any sort of wisdom around this? I mean, well, because obviously now there are plenty of things to invest in. Um, liquidity is an issue, but um, right. uh, you know, just as you said, you participated in the women's lab, our women's lab with Pond, which was we were very excited about. But it'll be good to sort of get your thoughts around that. Sure, sure. Well, maybe moving sort of away from the foundation and thinking about the family office more broadly, you know, then we, you know, then we are looking at a more traditional asset allocation. And one of the challenges mm-hmm. is it, typically when you start to say impact. Um, you get a lot of venture capital deals that that you know show up on your doorstep, or venture capital funds, which are you know which are great and very interesting, and some of them I think have very interesting risk return characteristics and very exciting social environmental dimensions to them. But you know, in a typical allocation model, you're just not going to have that much of your portfolio if you were following a traditional asset allocation model. That much of your portfolio in venture capital. So, so then, you know, you need to look for the larger asset classes, so public equity, private equity, public credit, private credit, uh, real estate. And you know, my observation would be that it's, it's you know, we, 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 we struggled a little bit more in finding um, investment opportunities in those asset classes that we were excited about. I mean, we are finding them. Um, and I think there's more product being developed all of the time in those asset classes. Um, but it, it, we need more product. I think it's one of the, mm-hmm. you know, the more high-performing product, I think, is, is one of the challenges. And I think you know, when you start to move into the institutional world, of course, we just need lots of more fixed-income product. And one of the things that we're right. excited about doing and excited about supporting our innovations um, like what IIX has done, like what social finance is doing, and others um, around the fixed income universe and how we can um, participate in building more product and developing more product in that space that meets institutional and family office needs. I uh, wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the investments that you have made uh, and what uh, criteria you used uh, to sort through all the different opportunities you might have, and then you selected uh, to to uh, invest in these particular uh, projects. Uh, 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 could you take us through that thinking? 
Sure. So, so, so generally speaking, we think about different, different areas as available to us to investment. So the first would be uh, financing businesses that are directly addressing environmental and social challenges. So this would include the Women's Livelihood Bond, where we believe the proceeds of that bond will go directly to microfinance and impact enterprises that are improving the livelihoods of women. This would include um, a social finance-led bond financing and the impact bond space called Massachusetts Pathways, where the proceeds of the bond issuance are being used to fund a service provider that's providing vocational language training to an immigrant population to help them um, find and secure jobs. And we get paid based on their success in doing so, and we don't get paid if they're not successful in doing so. Um, this would include a financing that we led um, to fund a local coding school here in the Queens area, which takes an incoming population with a median income of $18,000 a year, teaches them Android, iOS, JavaScript, and nine months later, for free, uh, and nine months later, they're placing those graduates with a 90% placement rate, making $85,000 a year. It's extraordinary in, in the world of job training to see something this, this impactful. We led a financing that um, enabled the, the provider, in this case, uh, Coalition for Queens, to uh, double their capacity, um, their student capacity. So it would also include investing in, um, we have investments in sort of sustainable uh, agricultural, vital farms. We have investments in energy efficiency, energy savvy, but also moving away from businesses that are directly addressing environmental and social issues. We also look for businesses that are incorporating environmental, social, governance, best practices in their business model, where whatever it might be. And in some way, when you start to move into this discussion of sustainability and environmental social governance, that, of course... It's almost ESG, so looking at yeah. the ESG portfolio. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it certainly... I mean, we, we believe that it's really important to address environmental and social issues across the entire economy, right, and not to mm -hmm. limit ourselves just to... Um, businesses that are directly addressing environmental and social issues, but how do we engage with a retailer? How do we, you know, and talk about their workforce practices or their sustainable supply chain? Um, how do we engage with a bank and talk about um, their subprime lending practices or, um, you know, so, so forth and so on, a utility and talk about grid modernization or the OEM value chain around automobiles and electrification? So we, we, we take these issues of environment and social impact from businesses that are directly addressing them to businesses in any sector and how they incorporate them into, the, into their business operations and how they conduct their business. So, Tony, I'm curious. So the ones, the investments that you're looking at, um, you know, that you're doing in ESG, do you then try to encourage them to become more environmentally sort of focused or more socially focused? Because... Um, you know, for ESG, as we know, there's obviously a spectrum, right, in terms yeah. of, um, you know, how, how environmentally deep they are or socially. So do you actually play an active role in, in terms of trying to make it more of a core well, um, issue for them? 
we thank you for that, Doreen. Yes, we, we do. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of our strategy that we're, you know, building capacity toward right now. But, but absolutely, we engage with companies around what we believe to be the material ENS, ESG factors in their business, and we um, intend to gently nudge, not so gently nudge them towards improving those. And, not, it, and, and it's really because we believe it's good business. And that yeah. over the long term, if you're measuring it over a long, over the right time frame, not in quarters and sometimes not in years, but we believe that these investments will pay dividends both in driving revenues and reducing expenses, certainly in avoiding unforeseen liabilities. Um, and what we're seeing is that actually there's, there's, there's evolving research that shows that companies um, perform better financially, those that engage and ESG, and in the in the more short term, typically the market will take their cash flows and revalue those cash flows. They'll put a higher multiple on them because they'll view those cash flows as being less risky or higher quality cash flows, if you will. So, while we might not see the income statement impacts of an investment in sustainability for five years or ten years or the avoided liability in ten years, we can actually see the market. Um, reward with reward the company with a higher stock price in one or two years if the market comes to believe that this company is taking these issues of, of um, environmental social governance seriously. Uh, I was wondering, uh, you, you, you talked about the different uh, investments that uh, uh, Inherent has made. Uh, how, how do you think about uh, the financial returns that you expect and how do you measure the social impact uh, that you have uh, through your investments, right? Um, you know, I, I, again, it's a question that it, it kind of depends on what area of the firm we're investing. But generally speaking, outside, unless we're in the foundation where we're talking about program-related investments, we're looking for market rates of return mm -hmm. on our investments, and we believe that we're going to do better than market rates of return again, adjusted for how much risk that we're taking. And that really puts squarely with our view that addressing environmental and social issues is good for business. It drives revenues because these are long-term thematic you know, renewables. Right. It's a long-term thematic growth trend. Healthy foods, long-term growth trend. Investment in water, long-term growth trend. Investment in folks at the bottom of the pyramid, right? And in women's uh, issues. That's a long-term growth trend. So we actually think that it will drive, it can drive above market rates of returns because these are, these are growth areas. We also believe that by addressing these issues, no matter what sector you're in, you reduce the riskiness of your cash flows. I mean, a lot of times the leaders that pay attention to these issues, it tends to be a proxy for just overall good leadership. It's a culture of innovation. It's a, it's a culture of risk management, a culture of operational excellence. So, so we really believe that and what we're out to show is that we can generate market-beating returns um, by addressing these issues. There's a fallacy in the marketplace that anytime you talk about impact or anytime you talk about sustainability, people you know, often assume you're talking about below market rates of return. And we, just, we, we fundamentally um, don't believe that, and we want to show that. And by so doing, we hope to encourage a lot more capital into this space and a lot more capital to, to address these issues. So the second part of that question was how do you measure, you know, how do you measure impact? And I think, you know, I think that is 
that's a very, very good question. And, you know, we could spend the entire show talking about um, right. <laughs> data and measurement. And this is a really, you know, this is, a, is, is an area where there's a lot of activity and a lot of people are, are thinking about it. But, you know, at, at this moment in time, if you're investing in, um, you know, in a, in a smaller transaction, uh, you, you, you know, you really need the IIXs of the world or the social finance of the world, a trusted, a trusted um, intermediary, a trusted um, um, program oversight entity uh, to, to monitor the impact um, that, is, that is occurring. And that starts with some very basic questions about what is it, what is it that we're trying to impact? How, do we, how are we going to measure it? And how are you going to report on it, right? I mean, those are fundamental to any any investment. Um, when you move out of the, you know, some of the, you know, the impact bond space, or maybe even out of the VC space, you know, and you start to get into the public markets, you talk about sustainability. You know, there are there's a, 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 a there's really no consistency today in how companies report on these issues. There are a number of guidelines that have evolved, including GRI, uh, including SASB here in the United States, which um, which we like that framework. They focus on um, developing what are the material ESG issues on a sector by sector basis, but the companies often don't report those. Certainly not in their SEC filings. Sometimes. They'll report on certain of those, but use different units in a kind of annual responsibility report. So it is challenging today to get uh, to get good data and good consistent reporting. Um, but it's evolving. I think you'll. I think eventually it's going to evolve either towards more consistent, transparent data or towards a rating agency model where you have intermediaries who are able to um, go to the companies. And look at non-public information, and really assess what the impact performance is, or what the sustainability performance of that company is. So, Tony, it almost sounds like some of the things that um, you're mentioning, which obviously you know we are seeing, you know, from IAX. I mean, one is um, the whole notion of need for more structured products, and then, in some ways, also this continuous sort of ecosystem building, you know, that needs yeah. to happen um, for impact investing to to really grow and i think it you know and both sort of go hand in hand and uh, and how do we encourage you know sort of the you know foundations and the donor agencies to to actually embrace that because that is something that um you know needs that uh, i would say the extra nudge um from uh, i would say the powers beyond and i think what what would be your thought around it yeah well, well, one. Let me say, I'm I'm just I'm so thrilled and excited. Just how many how many family officers I meet who are talking about this. How many institutional investors I meet who are who are talking and thinking about this. I mean, I just and you, know, you have some sixty trillion in assets now that have signed the UN's principles of responsible investing. I think it's an idea. Right. So they're that's they're, been they're actually talking about it. So they're yes. actually they're aware and oh, that's fantastic. Okay, good. But, yeah, so okay. I, I think it's, a, it's an idea, you know, that's been talked about for a long period of time, but whose idea, Sorry. whose time has come. I'd say, the, I'd say the advisor community is still behind on this topic, and I guess my advice would be, you know, you know when I first started talking about this, you know, a number of people here in 
New York City and in the advisory community would kind of look at me like I had three heads or, you know, or just <laughs> kind of smile and nod and, 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 and almost in a condescending way and say, yeah, but, you know, go maximize return and then you can figure out what you want to do with your returns and if you want to give that away, you know, do it that way. So I guess my advice would be to, to family offices and individuals at least to go find a great advisor and it's not easy to do and if your advisor is smiling at you condescendingly and encouraging you not to change the way that you invest, I mean, just smile and nod back at them and go find a different advisor, I guess, would be my advice. Because they are out there. Um, and even within, the, you know, even within the, the major investment banks, there are teams that get this and teams that don't. But there are, in most of the major banks now, at least one of the high net worth for family office teams understands this, is plugged into the product um, flows. Um, not necessarily just showing you their own proprietary product, but seeing more broadly what's happening in the space. So, so I f- think you know, find a find a good advisor would be my um, my advice, and and don't come at it with any preconceived notions because I think there is a whole range of product available across different asset types. I think it's possible to be 100% invested in a values-aligned way. That's my goal. I'm not there yet, but I'm I'm confident that I will get there. And, um, and, you know, it, it, it's an education process and a journey, but it's also, it's also just a, it's a wonderful journey, and it's, a, and it's a, I think, an optimistic journey and one that um, brings together friends and family in a great way around something that historically, you know, you kind of left to the advisors to go invest, tell you how to invest your money. Uh, if I could just uh, continue uh, uh, with uh, along the same lines that Doreen mentioned and take take the longer view of the future, uh, what do you think uh, will it it will take to for for impact investment to go mainstream, uh, and what do you think needs to be done to make that happen? Well, I I think in the near term we need more product, and that starts with more impact enterprises on the ground. Um, I, I also, you know, I, I'm also of the, in, in the big tent category. I think, you know, there, there are some that sort of kind of want to define impact in a very narrow way. It has, but I, I, I think that, as I've talked a little bit about on this call, almost any business can be impactful. I mean, business creates jobs. It creates wealth. And if it's conducted in the right way, it can be done in a way that's responsible to the environment and responsible to, to the community. And so I, I think at some point impact and sustainability will stop being separate asset classes and will be part of every asset class. It will just be part of how we think about um, underwriting an investment, uh, part of how we think about measuring our returns will be financial returns and also a measurement of impact and sustainability. And so that's the long-term goal and vision for me, um, that it stops being a distinct asset class and it's just part of every investment. I think to get there, we need to disabuse, to move the large sums of capital. I mean, we need to sort of disabuse folks of this notion that you're going to receive a below-market return. because that just in, that that puts us back in the in the philanthropy space, which is large, it's three hundred billion dollars a year in the United States, right? But it's nowhere um, in size next to 
what the capital markets can can provide. So we have to disabuse folks of this notion that it's a subsidized uh, activity. It, uh, thank you so much. I think that's been uh, a very, very insightful discussion. Uh, Doreen, any final comments from you as we wrap up? No, I think that was absolutely fabulous, Tony. And there was a lot of words of wisdom and also, um, you know, a, a great way for us to find out that, you know, the work that we're doing is appreciated. So, so thank you very much. And thanks for, you know, marching along with the flag of impact investing. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being okay. on the call today. You bet. Thanks right. so much. I enjoyed okay, chatting. Take care. Sure. You're listening to From the Backstreet to Wall Street. I'm Mukul Pandya, Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton. Today we have on our show Backstreet to Wall Street a guest, a very special guest, actually, from the other side of the ocean, from Hong Kong. So uh, welcome to the show, Annie. Uh, Annie Chen, who is the founder and chair of Ars Group in Asia. So thank you, Annie, for joining us today. No, thank you, Doreen, for, for having me on the show. Great. So, Annie, just, uh, just uh, what I'll do is give a little bit of a background to our listeners um, on the fantastic work that Ars Group is doing. Um, so Ars Group is based in Hong Kong. It's a family office, and uh, you actually take your portfolio approach to asset allocation in a very holistic way. Um, which is extremely interesting because uh, when, you know, we were sort of digging in and reading more about it, I mean, obviously, RS Group has been doing this work now quite a while. Um, it was fantastic to read this this approach that you take that, you know, it ranges from, you know, philanthropic capital to, to actually going into investing in the funds which are creating impact and socially responsible investment, et cetera. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, this is a really a holistic approach you know, from a very innovative family office, you know, what made you do this? What makes you do this? Um, share some, if you can share that with us. Um, sure. Uh, thanks, Doreen. Um, so we really started this, uh, or I started this journey um, now almost uh, uh, nine years ago uh, when I had to take responsibility for um, some, uh, uh, a, sh- a share of the family wealth um, and in fact, when I started, uh, it was quite a daunting um, prospect. Um, and uh, what I thought was a disadvantage, meaning that I actually don't have an investment background, um, mm-hmm. now in, in hindsight actually uh, turned out uh, to have been a good thing. Um, because oh, really? I was, okay. Uh, yeah, because um, I uh, felt that I really needed some uh, outside help. Um, right. And we uh, did this uh, in a step-by-step way. Um, part of me uh, was really reacting to the fact that um, uh, as part of a larger family office that involved other family offices, I had um, been questioning uh, kind of what's the, the purpose behind uh, having uh, wealth um, and how can we really use it in a, in a more... Um, proactive and purposeful way, um, and um, I really kind of uh, came upon this um, using investing for um, positive impact, um, not because I was looking for it, but um, I actually has, uh, was starting uh, to look at things from more of a philanthropic uh, perspective, but mm-hmm. 
an introduction to the whole notion of social enterprises um, then connected me to uh, the idea of then investing in these social enterprises um, that had a mission uh, to uh, um, produce positive uh, social or environmental impact. Um, and then gradually um, uh, it became clear to me that um, with the scale of problems that we're facing, um, philanthropy is just not going to be enough. Um, right. And uh, so I decided that um, we really ought to um, utilize all the tools we have in our toolkit. Um, and in my situation, uh, it is really about activating the entire portfolio and to make sure that, um, uh, that we can maximize uh, the positive uh, consequences uh, while minimizing the negative consequences. Um, but you can only do it if you look at everything kind of very holistically um, because we also need to meet, um, you know, some objective uh, performance targets as well. Right. Now, it's interesting. So, you, you know, you mentioned that when you started sort of, um, you sort of stumbled on it, uh, this whole notion of investing in organizations which were creating social and environmental um, good. Now, mm -hmm. these organizations, were they in Hong Kong, or did you actually hear about them? I mean, how did you even go about it? Yeah, so I actually started attending some uh, philanthropy conferences, um, um, you know, looking to educate myself uh, on how to do uh, philanthropy um, uh, uh, in a better way, um, mm -hmm. and uh, was introduced to this notion of social entrepreneurship, um, which seemed to kind of like very neatly bridge uh, the investment uh, side of things and the uh, grant side of things. Um, and from there, you know, I, I was so intrigued that I just started doing a lot more research on my own um, and discovered that there's a whole world out there that, um, because by then, I think um, uh, uh, impact investing, the coin had just been, um, the term had just been coined. Um, right, that was in 2009. And, yeah, and then there were there were all sorts of um, interesting reports and um, uh, discussions about it online, um, and mm -hmm. I just uh, got deeper and deeper into it, um, mm -hmm. and um, basically just got hooked. And then from right. there, um, I think I started really seeing the whole spectrum of capital, you know, uh, from the purely commercial uh, end of things um, to something in the middle, uh, which uh, uh, is a combination of trying to accomplish some um, social or environmental impact uh, while generating some return to, um, you know, um, the, uh, uh, the grant-making uh, 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 part. And right. I realized that, um, that um, one is, it is possible to actually construct a um, a portfolio of, it, of uh, investments that encompasses uh, uh, the entire spectrum. And right. so that's what so I started you, doing. Right. So now, you know, obviously you have done um, philanthropy um, with your funds. Um, yes. You have, it sounds like you've done direct investment in social enterprises as well. Is that correct? Um, yes. Um, so let me uh, maybe um, just explain a little bit um, what my portfolio looks like. Um, right. So from the outside, um, our portfolio um, uh, is like, you know, any other portfolio. Um, we mm -hmm. um, are talking about managing a pool of assets, 
Uh, we mm-hmm. uh, approach um, uh, the uh, work in much the same way that mainstream investors do, which is, you know, you look at your um, your risk return profile, um, you look at what your um, uh, return objectives are. Uh, we use um, diversification to mm-hmm. uh, achieve a balance uh, uh, of um, risk versus um, uh, return, um, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So um, from the outside looking in, um, you know, if you just look at uh, what we uh, have invested in, it looks no different than um, uh, other portfolios. Um, however, right. if you dig a little bit deeper, um, uh, we, um, uh, I'd say that close to 100% of our um, portfolio um, is invested sustainably. Uh, by that, mm-hmm. I mean uh, we, use, we apply an ESG lens uh, to all of our investments. Right. Uh, and then um, uh, we basically um, uh, have a classification where uh, some investments are simply uh, what I would call SRI or um, sustainable and responsible uh, investments um, that can be right. uh-huh. into any asset class but, you know, meet some minimum ESG uh, criteria. Uh, the other um, uh, uh, type would be more targeted investments where um, some social or environmental uh, outcome um, is more specifically uh, uh, um, incorporated into the, um, into the business. Um, right. We invest so, actually mostly so sorry, Annie, just, just, to, just to give our listeners a little bit more of an understanding, um, yeah. because it's interesting because obviously some family offices um, are looking at, you know, they are investing in SRI, which is obviously, I, I always sort of call it, uh, you know, uh, moving, you know, this is a good first step towards impact mm-hmm. investing, right? So, yeah. and then in terms of the impact investing itself, um, their family offices who are directly investing in organizations or they're investing in funds, you know, sort of mm-hmm. uh, to the intermediaries. Um, right. In terms of sort of looking at your portfolio, uh, what would you say is the breakdown and why did you have it that way? I mean, uh, in terms of looking at also risk and the impact, because I always say there's, it's a three-pronged approach, right? Basically the financial return, the social return, and then obviously the risk factor that goes into both of them. Um, how sure. would you say your portfolio is sort of divided up and what wisdom would you share with our listeners? Well, um, I think um, uh, we have the portfolio that we have today um, uh, in large part because of um, how we evolved. Um, mm-hmm. And at the beginning, again, you know, because um, uh, uh, impact investing and even, um, I would say, SRI in um, Asia and in Hong Kong um, was not a very uh, uh, well-known um, uh, thing. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, when I first started, I was, you know, looking to banks um, for for some solutions, um, and right. very few were conversant um, in what, you know, the UNPRI uh, stands for and uh, what's ESG. Um, and so I basically had to um, uh, kind of create my portfolio pretty much uh, by myself, obviously with some external uh, assistance. Um, right. But um, it took some time for us to even um, convert, uh, you know, some legacy investments into um, the uh, sustainable uh, investments that we wanted. 
and also over time we started investments, current investments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and also over time we introduced kind of like um, further considerations. For example, in 2013, um, uh, we were exposed to the divest invest movement. Uh, which, mm-hmm. as you know, started in the U.S., um, and it was very much geared towards um, uh, uh, climate change uh, concerns uh, and right. the need to move away from fossil fuel uh, to uh, renewable and clean energy. And uh, from that point uh, onwards, we basically decided that we were going to apply a climate change lens uh, uh, to how we invest, um, and that's always a consideration uh, when we uh, uh uh, make um, further uh, investments. Um, to your right. point about, um, you know, the different uh, types of investments, um, I'd say we invest mostly through funds um, for the mm-hmm. reason that um, uh, direct investments um, uh, require uh, a, lot, uh, a lot more involvement. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. as a very small team, uh, uh, and also with um, a less, robust, I would say, uh, kind of impact investment community in Hong Kong, we find it very difficult uh, to engage in a lot of direct investments uh, while um, uh, being able to do a good job uh, monitoring uh, and supporting our our direct investments. So um, they really make up a very small uh, part of our portfolio. Right. Uh, But but we would like to do it more. Right. Just, just to, just to, um, again, just to sort of clarify, it's very interesting. Um, as you know, IX is based in Singapore, and we have this very active equity crowdfunding platform. So we have over a thousand investors. These are high net worth family offices, etc. And it's interesting where I guess in some ways also, when you do get involved in direct investment into organization, that does almost sort of show you uh, in a very close proximity, you know, the challenges and the issues that the organizations go through. And, and yeah. it has been, at least, you know, for us, it's been fascinating because we have closed over right. 40 deals that yeah. none of them have failed. And I think it is yeah. fascinating, right? It'll be sort of, I'm curious in terms of um, what you have seen, because we have seen with our, all the investments we have worked on that none of them have failed so far and has been, what, five some years. Um, and it is, it is, you know, it is fascinating. So it is not even sort of the regular VC, which obviously what they say only 2% makes it. So what, what do you think is the reason behind it? I'm sure you're seeing some of that in your portfolio, at least through your funds, right? That robustness, that, uh, you know, I think the lower risk in some ways associated with these type of entities. Uh, do you have any thoughts around that? Well, um, uh, I, 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 uh, probably have not seen as many as you have uh, from mm-hmm. where you are, um, and so I can only speak from kind of um, our uh, very much more limited um, experience. Um, I would say that um, for our um, a, a lot of uh, uh, factors kind of come into play uh, as to you know how successful or how sustainable um, some of these direct. Um, uh, 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 investments um, are. Um, mm-hmm. I do uh, think that um, uh, the fact that they're usually created by uh, um, strong entrepreneurs with uh, very uh, with great passion and with right. um, a very strong focus on 
um, their mission um, mm-hmm. and this tenacity as well, right? Because they um, are focused, um, you know, on uh, creating something that's bigger than themselves. Uh, probably mm-hmm. gives them, you know, um, that 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 drive uh, to not give up so easily. And then um, the other part of it would be the investors who choose to invest in them. I mean, they uh, choose these uh, to invest in these entrepreneurs again because there's alignment in vision and what they're trying to achieve beyond, you know, simply return. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think the uh, there's, um, uh, I'd say, a higher risk appetite and also uh, a stronger desire um, to um, help these um, businesses succeed uh, or at least not fail. Um, right. But that's that's. That's speaking from my own personal uh, uh, view. Right. No, but we do see it. We absolutely, you know, we absolutely do see it. I mean, um, that's very much a part of it. And I think, you know, um, and being an entrepreneur myself, I can sort of attest to that. You know, you just really push the push the envelope in terms of exactly something happens. But I right. think it's also very interesting. We had a obviously, you know, we we um, had this wonderful chat um, just now with Tony Davis, you know, who's with Inherent Group. And one of the things that Tony brought up um, is the fact that how in the U.S., and now we're seeing in Asia as well, um, which is there is a big appetite from the family offices for actually fixed income products. You know, that is, I'm not talking, you know, for social impact bonds per se, but really sort of, you know, the type of, like we just closed on a woman's livelihood bond, which is a different structure, but actually a real mm-hmm. bond. Um, creating impact. Now it seems like there is a lot of interest, at least from the investors, on these fixed income instruments which can create impact and give a financial return. I mean, do you think there is a sort of a a runway for this for uh, the investors in Hong Kong? Because we definitely see that. You know, we saw it in Singapore. We saw it in the U.S. You know, when we were selling this bond. Any thoughts around that, what you're seeing? Well, I think um, uh, from where, uh, from what I can see, um, I wouldn't say that Hong Kong has a very well-developed um, kind of impact-oriented market as yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I have come across um, uh, a few individuals who um, are interested, and I do think that um, there's uh, um, kind of more interest uh, in um, uh, uh Structuring investments um, uh, uh, around um, loans, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to always just thinking that it uh, has to be equity. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say that in um, you know coming back to you know what I know best, which is my own portfolio, um, we have right. always had a, um, a, a robust uh, portion of our fixed income allocation uh, into microfinance. Um, now, of course, you know, we all know that uh, microfinance at one point became a bit, a bit of a dirty word. Uh, no, but, no I, mean, it's still, um, I think it's yeah. still, I think I feel like, in fact, investing actually happened on the shoulder of microfinance. We always say that. Yeah, um, and um, so I think, absolutely. you know, we just need to kind of uh, make sure that um, we uh, go into these things with our eyes wide open and, and know uh, what we're trying to achieve as investors right. Um, right. Uh, beyond, you know, simply the financial return. Um, and then uh, not let um, kind of uh, um, occasional um, kind of incidents kind of affect us because we're taking the long view. 
Uh-huh. So I, I think um, uh, there is. Um, I, I would agree that you know there seems to be a growing interest um, uh, in uh, fixed income, particularly um, out here. Finally, people are talking about microfinance uh, uh, um, uh, more often. Right, right, and that's and it's interesting you mentioned that because um, we just um, closed this bond, and actually Tony from Inherent Group, our other guest, he had invested in it, and it's part of the portfolio of the bond was actually microfinance. So uh, you're, you're right on spot because we do have to be inclusive in terms of bringing all these different organizations who have done fantastic work and bringing them you know, under the whole impact investing umbrella. Now, I can't help but ask, I mean, you being a, a student of law and, you know, you went, to, you went to Columbia Law School, you went to Brown for your undergraduate degree. I mean, do you think regulation plays a big role in all of this? And what should we be sort of thinking about in Asia? What can we encourage the governments to take on? Ah, well, um, I think um, uh, every place is a little different. Um, in, in Hong Kong, um, I think the, the government um, is preoccupied but by a lot of other issues. Uh, but um, there are uh, within government, um, you know, uh, some folks who have an eye on uh, uh, this um, whole area um, and are quietly kind of trying to be supportive. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm hoping that we can see uh, much more um, uh, proactive um, involvement uh, from the uh, from government, from regulators, uh, because my own interest isn't simply in um, impact investing itself, uh, but really to take a broader lens um, where um, you know uh, people start taking uh, what I call this impact lens or value lens right. Uh, right. to how they invest across the different uh, asset classes, um, and I think Hong Kong has a long way to go, uh, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we're um, certainly trying to uh, um, do our part in terms of promoting uh, these concepts uh, by reaching out to other. Uh, family offices. Um, we, uh, as you know, we uh, put out our own report last year in uh, a bid to share our journey and our experiences with other similarly placed uh, uh, asset owners. Um, right. And we've had some good feedback, um, but I think it really will take a lot more, you know, um, uh, participation both from industry in terms of offering uh, interesting products. Um, or access to uh, impact products, um, to uh, government taking a more proactive uh, stance, uh, to also you know family offices um, and asset owners um, uh, uh, opening uh, their um, eyes to kind of this uh, this new uh, ecosystem um, right. and uh, uh, seeing how they can actually uh, use. Um, their wealth to make the world a better place. Right. So it's almost, it sounds like, you know, hand in hand as um, all these family offices are looking at creating impact, part of that impact also has to uh, be sort of uh, geared towards creating the market, the ecosystem, as well as educating yeah. uh, people yeah. in the ecosystem. Yeah, I think um, we've, we've seen a lot more um, say uh, in the U.S., um, uh, a lot of, of uh, foundations actually um, uh, using their grant money to help build the ecosystem. 
uh, and we have seen uh, lots of that out in Asia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we need to see more of that in in Asia. Right. I think. Right. Now I'm really glad you you mentioned that because I think again um, I always like to use the example of um, um, in Asia. You know, we are all enamored by the Silicon Valley, and I always tell people when they bring up the example of Silicon Valley that. You know, the government put in, you know, obviously billions of dollars to get Silicon Valley off the ground, and the foundations and the family offices play an enormous role in creating the whole uh, infrastructure of any type of, uh, you know, VC situation, So, and especially now in impact investing. So, so I'm really glad you mentioned that because we definitely do, do need that and much more of that, you know, in, in Asia. Um, so, Annie, thank you so very much. This was um, absolutely fantastic. Any any last word of wisdom, you know, from, uh, you know, across the Pacific to our audience in the U.S. and actually beyond? Well, um, I think I suppose for for people who are tuning in from from the U.S., um, I'd say uh, even though um, uh, uh, Hong Kong may be uh, lagging somewhat behind, uh, but um, uh, things are are starting to happen. and also in Asia generally, IAX is uh, such a wonderful example of um, how, you know, sh- through you know, just sheer dedication and hard work, you've been able to kind of really build an ecosystem uh, oh, based out of Singapore. And, um, uh, I, and to anybody who's uh, uh, Asia-based, I would say, um, you know, please uh, um, uh, consider, you know, being part of uh, building uh, this ecosystem out here. Um, because uh, we need more voices and we need more diversity uh, in this community um, to make it really grow. But I have to say you have uh, been a leader in this space, and thank you for paving the path for others. So thank you for being on the show, and uh, you know, we look forward to having you over again. Thank you very much, Annie. Thank you very much, Doreen. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.